Welcome to episode seven of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. How's it going? If you want to comment on anything we're talking about, go to uh, trim forward slash texting seven. That's tr.im forward slash texting seven, which is specifically for this episode and uh, the comments about this episode. All 150 people who listen to the show can can go. 150 people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, listen, we're only two weeks old. 150 isn't bad. Well, I know we've had more than that. I mean, a couple of the shows had five, 600 people. So it was just last show was only 150, probably because we didn't have a, um, we didn't have a hook. But I think know? that's more indicative of you how know, many- I mean, we didn't have a, you, you have to have a hook, right? To get yeah. new people interested. I think, or at least to have a big spike, you either need some really interesting topic that a lot of people are curious to learn about or hear about, or you need a really interesting guest, I think. Yeah. If, you're not, if you don't have a hook, then it's just going to be a, a slow growth. Um, but there's nothing wrong with slow growth. And I mean, to be honest, 150, I mean, as I was just about to say, last, last week's episode, uh, number six, the fact that 150 people listen to it, that's indicative of a real, you know, those are people who actually sort of listen, you know rather than looking for the hook so you know we have 150 <laughs> ah, well, that's not bad not bad so what did you predict you predicted 60 right i predicted 60 yeah you what did you predict i predicted i predicted uh 240 so was it it was exactly the average so what, what was your thinking right? what why did you think because of some exactly of the biggest the average. so I'm, I'm sorry. Say that again. What was your thinking behind the 240? Because of some of the the biggest spikes when Peldy was well, on. Well, yeah. I mean, I that 60 was really pessimistic. I mean, you know, we've had like was like 650 with the interview with Peldy, and the Joel one about Erlang was like 450. I figured, you know, we didn't have a hook, so it was going to be lower. I mean, 60 was sound pretty <laughs> pessimistic to me. But <laughs> I guess 240, maybe that was a little. Uh, maybe that was, obviously, that was a little pessimistic, but. We, I said the bet we had was how many listeners would we have or how many downloads would we have at the end of seven days? Yeah. So actually we have until the end of Monday, until Monday afternoon. Oh, uh, so, okay. Fair enough. So we'll probably be up around 175, 180 maybe. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I guess uh, we kind of, we're both, we're both wrong, almost equally wrong, I guess. So, today, so today's first topic, uh, and I know you don't want to discuss this, is Michael Jackson. Nice. <laughs> have about zero interest in Michael Jackson. I, I can't imagine that people listening to those podcast messages, but okay, so let's talk about Michael Jackson. Well, it was, we just one, it was just one aspect. It was okay. Twitter, Twitter. Okay. So I just thought it was really interesting because... You okay, know, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. So what? essentially it's not really Michael Jackson, it's the Twitter segment. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's do our Twitter segment. The Twitter segment is, you know, about... It's, well, it's just about learning about Michael Jackson across Twitter. It was a very strange experience. You know? Okay. Um, I mean, it's the, it's the, cause you know, I've become like, obviously a Twitter fanatic, you right. know, I'm, I'm on it all day long. So, um, you know, as soon as that Michael Jackson thing happened, it was on Twitter. Lots of people were talking about it and it brought down Twitter. Right. Right. So, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the Iranian thing. I guess that was a big Twitter uh, example of Twitter usage and the power of Twitter. Um, you know, I can't, I still am having a hard time getting into Twitter. It's not that I don't see how people use it. I just don't have the time for it. I mean, it's, it's distracting. It's the, it's the problem with, you know, same problem with like Skype and stuff. You know, people, I aming me in the middle of the day, I'm trying to get work done and people asking me questions and stuff. I want to just turn it off. You're talking and about me, now, aren't you? And it, 
Yeah, you're a prime example. You know, it's not that I don't find what you have to say interesting or whatever. It's just it's distracting. It's like someone sitting next to you. It's like, hey, Jason, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, I'm interested in talking to you. But if I do, then I'm not getting work done. It throws me off. It's funny. That's what Joel Spolsky talks about. He he talks about put programmers in a cell, like in a a cubicle so that they can't talk to other programmers. Because every time you, uh, you know, a programmer bugs another programmer for a question, they both lose time. Well, I don't think it says cubicle. Actually, I think it says private offices. Oh, yeah, private office, yeah. Right? I mean, because cubicles, you still have that problem, and cubicles kind of suck anyway. But I think... Because you're in yeah. the zone. Yeah. I mean, that's what Microsoft does. And uh, I but, can see why, because it's distracting. It's fun, but you don't get much work done. I don't know. I mean, when we were, when we were building War, you know, we were, paired, we were paired programming. There was four of us around a table all facing in towards each other, and um, we were VNCing well, we on each other's pair- screen. Well, maybe in your pair programming, because that's not really um, this. I mean, you obviously it's different if you're, but if you're multiple pairs in the same area, it might be distracting. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, I've never done it, so I can't really say. But I can say that you know, people I aming me distracts me, and because it's just, it's just sort of an, it's just interruptive. And then I now there's this Twitter thing. Now, not that Twitter, now Twitter isn't a secret. So I obviously have to go and refresh it, like my email or something. But at the same time. Just the fact that there's something, one more inbox that you have, one more thing that you're supposed to be maintaining, you're supposed to be paying attention to. It's like, you know, I got to check my voicemail, I got to check my inbox, I got to look at the IM, and now there's this other damn thing I got to like pay attention. And then it's not even useful just to like check. I mean, you're, it's only useful if you get like a, a, a following or get a lot of people who you're sort of interacting with or influencing, which means you got to spend a lot of time coming up with interesting things that people want to hear about. Right? Yeah. Yep. So it's just it's, I think Twitter is like blogging in the sense that it's probably valuable if you're willing to make it a big investment in time, which I'm doing, and that's why I've got a you know, thousand plus followers, which I was sort of hoping really? to cu- yeah I was hoping to a cultivate thousand? that yeah I was hoping to cultivate I that I got seventeen <laughs> <laughs> I got seventeen dude you got a thousand I mean thousand and seventy yeah what. <laughs> well, I spent like two days where I like, I like, I said, all right, all right. So I'm going to try and build up a presence and I'll, I'll just tweet about a lot of interesting articles or interesting quotes or interesting things that are relevant to say, you know, tech and startups or whatever stuff that I want to talk about. Um, and, um, you know, I did like eight or 10 in a sense, what I was doing was every time I would find a link that I'd want to save myself, I have my own sort of link manager, kind of like a delicious thing. And I would post at that, and then I have to post it to Twitter, which is like double. You have twice the work. Yeah. You know? And, but then I felt like I was doing it too much. It was like I would, you know, I'd like do like 10 of them, and then I wouldn't do anything for like two days. Well, basically, I've, I've just settled down on uh, 10 a day, one an hour, approximately. That's, that's what I try and do it. So I'll research them uh, at night, and then the next day I'll just, I've got a little alarm on my computer that pings off. And uh, when the alarm comes up, I post it. <laughs> Oh, you find that distracting, though? I do find it distracting, but, you know, on the other hand, it's not that distracting. It takes a minute. I, I mean, can't you, can you multitask? Yeah, but, you know, it's, you know how it is with, with writing code and stuff. It's like things throw you off, and once you're off track, sometimes it takes, hard, it takes a while to get back yeah. in the zone and making any progress. It's like, you know, every time I get a phone call or get an email. I, I guess that. I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, mainly I'm not coding right now. I'm mainly doing things like mocking up and designing and stuff like that, so that's easier. That's probably yeah, why I can do I, it right now. I have a lot of inertia. I'm not, the, I'm not the greatest at context switching. I know some people can multitask really well, but I like to do one thing at a time. And 
and I'm interested in lots of things. So I have to force myself if I make progress to do one thing at a time. And if I'm just if I'm constantly interrupted, I just don't. Well, that brings us on to onto our, our next topic very nicely, which is uh, an Indian tech CEO says Americans are lazy and unemployable. <laughs> oh, really? Who is this? Um, he is um, Vinit Nayar, N-A-Y-A-R. Is the CEO of what? Um, uh, a vendor called HCL Technologies. It's, uh, okay, it's, so it's a pretty big company. Guy. <laughs> no, 2.5 billion oh, revenue company. Okay. So Americans are lazy and unemployable? Basically, it's just talking about the fact that, um, you know, like and, and Americans sort of come from come from the viewpoint of being creative and doing the next big startup and the next big thing, whereas, uh, well, he says Indians, but he also says other other ethnic cultures. You know, basically, they Western. come from they come from the viewpoint of just getting the job done, whatever the job is. Okay. You know? What do you mean? I, I don't understand. So they get they come from the viewpoint of getting a job done. I mean, isn't that a well, good thing? Well, then what? Yeah, exactly. That is a good thing. That's why he's saying Americans are you know can't do it. That's what he says. Wait, I'm confused. Because Americans want, I think in terms of getting the job done, they're not They're productive. not prepared. They're not, they're not so productive because they're less likely to graft, to just do boring work. Then, you know, they're always sort of thinking, trying to think outside the box, be creative and do, you know. Well, that's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, maybe that's true for people doing startups, but I can't imagine that's very true for all the people working at all these big companies who are, you know, slugging it out, you know, on internal software. I mean, they're not doing fun, cool stuff. Well, think about what his, what his company does, HCL Technology. So it sounds like they're probably, you know, like an outsourcing solution, right? So they probably <laughs> just build websites and stuff for people. So all of that work, well, a lot of that work probably isn't hugely interesting. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's probably the kind of thing where if you're coming from cold, you know, America and Western Europe are wealthy. People have options comparatively, com at least compared to you know countries like India. And if you're, you know, I don't know a whole lot about India, but my sense, my understanding is that you know the the people who, if you're working in the software industry there, it's an opportunity to make some really good money. And if you if you your family has not had a lot of money, then you're like, hey, I can really pull myself and my whole family into the next level. Yeah. And they're like, whatever it takes. Just kind of like, you know, um, a lot of immigrant immigrants in the U.S. over the last couple hundred years, people would move to the U.S. and they would work their butts off. And then by the time we get the second and third generations and we're born here, we're just lazy because life is easy and we just expect yeah. to have the easy street. But, you know, anytime, anytime you're used to having to scrap and really you know, just to make ends meet, you know, you're willing to work harder and do what it takes. And if you're, e you're used to easy street, then yeah, I could see why do I want to do that crap job? I've never had to do crap work. <laughs> I don't want to do crap work, you know, yep. I could see that. I mean, I think that just makes sense, you know, but if, and if India gets to the point where, you know, the next 20, 30, 50, 80 years, whatever it takes where they become, you know, where a lot of their educated population becomes wealthy, they're not gonna, uh, you know, yeah, you know those people aren't gonna. They're not gonna want to do the, uh, the 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 grunt work either. <laughs> it's gonna be outsourced to somebody else. Okay. You know? So I'm trying to like uh, push through the the topic so that we can give our listeners a few different things to talk, to listen to. Okay. Um. So number three was, and I like this a lot. This concept. It takes ten hours to master anything. Sorry, ten hours. God. Ten hours to master <laughs> yeah. anything. Is Jeez. that a new book series you're coming yeah. out with? Sorry. Uh, it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. And I thought this was kind of cool because when you think about this in terms of coding, I mean, 
you're probably you probably come in about the same as me at like you know over thirty thousand hours coding <laughs> over the last 20 years kind of thing god i don't even want to do that calculation that sounds depressing <laughs> i mean it's incredible <laughs> isn't it you know like when, when, when you think about it that way you think about you know uh saying to a client look i'm going to charge you 100 bucks an hour i mean it's perfectly fine you know i've i've done thirty thousand hours of this so i know what i'm doing i gotta charge you 100 bucks <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, you know, well, that's from uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, right? Isn't yeah. that what he was? That's sort of his result, which I think he's actually quoting from other research. I don't know if that was actually his finding or he's just, or maybe that was findings of some researchers that he's sort of summarizing. I don't know if he, the 10,000 hours is his or something, somebody else's. But anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably not, that's probably a reasonable number for a lot of things, I would guess. I mean, I th- it seems like he said that for, it was like for like pro- become a professional athlete or, or a music, professional musician or, you know, just yeah, pretty stuff. much anything like, you know, to, uh, so it's like, for example, if Tiger Woods, you know, between the ages of 10 and 20 practiced 2.7 hours a day, that's like 10,000 hours. Yeah. You know, and I guess that I wonder if that has a relationship to, okay, so here, here's where I, where I would think about it. And this is just off the cuff. I haven't thought about this before, but yeah, okay. Sure. So if the people who are at the top at any, in any, in any field, whether it's sports or music or business or art or whatever, then um, only a certain percentage of those people uh, you're going to sort of have a pyramid of how much time people put into anything they allocate to things. And there's only a certain number of people who can be at the very top um, who are going to be the best at stuff. And the amount of time that it takes is just going to be sort of like a, a curve. So if there's only 100 or 200 or 2,000 people at the top, then anybody who spends less than that won't be at the top. And the top is what's considered the mastery of that, of that field, you know? Mm. Um I don't know if that may not make sense. I don't know if that's very well I think well it makes sense. Out. I think it makes sense. Yeah. So basically you're saying the people – yeah, I mean it, obviously it doesn't work that way all the time because, you know, you get these young young upstarts who sort of zoom up a company's hierarchy really quickly. Yeah, but then it doesn't necessarily mean they've mastered something. They're talking about mastery of a subject, not necessarily yeah. ascending to a position of power. You know, I mean, people can ascend to a position of power because they have, you know, connections and people just kind of usher them by. But you don't become a, uh, you know, professional basketball player because somebody likes you or you're somebody's, you yeah. know, relative. You're only going to get there and get paid that kind of money if you're awesome. And the only way you're going to be awesome is if you are naturally gifted to some level and you work your butts off, butt off for years. In, in a roundabout way, it made me think about something else, which was hours and, and how those hours, are, 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 well, basically how the work you do gets quantified from a client's point of view. Because, well, what I'm getting at is that when you first code something, right, you know, it, you, may, you may code it with, I don't know, a thousand lines of code, but then, you know, that's your sort of first pass. And then you work on it a bit harder and then you cut the code down because you refactor it. And then maybe you'll come back and look at it in a month later and you'll make it smaller. So what's stranger is, is the code is shrinking, but the time is right. expanding. So a client might look at it and, you know, in the end, they'll just maybe see four lines of code and they'll go, you know, what the, what the hell's going on here? What am I paying for? <laughs> yeah, well, if you, uh, you know, if you look at a, at a, at a like I say, a scientific paper published by, you know, by a professor, a scientist or something, and it's like 10 or 15 pages and it took a month of work because yeah. they, they had to spend all these sort of phases of of re of iterating and cleaning things up and reducing things down to most important elements and and you're like oh you tell how it took you you know six months to work on this paper and it's got fifteen pages or twelve pages or something yeah but it's I mean, weird. It's, yeah. yeah sorry no you go 
the 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 other thing about it, I remember there's a famous quote, and I can't remember it. I think it's Edgar Allan Poe, but I could be wrong. But he's a famous quote that says something like, "I'd write you a short letter, but I don't have the time." Meaning yeah. that it takes a lot of time to write a really good short letter because you just, you know, you can write, you can, you can, you know, write, you know, just kind of stream of consciousness. It's so off. strange the way that simplicity takes flipping ages, you know, yeah. and complexity is easy. Like, I mean, you know, once again, a site that I'm working on now, you know, and I'm just working on uh, CSS and HTML just to make it really neat and tight. And it, it just takes so long to get that stuff right, especially when you bring the IE6 factor into the equation. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, it's like coding. I sort of just, sometimes I describe it. And I don't know if I, 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 I'm sure other people have said things like this, but I, one of my way, favorite ways of describing is sort of it's the art of managing complexity. Right. Really, what it is, and uh, you know, it's it, especially once you get beyond a very simple program. It's just early software development. Is how do we manage this complexity? And uh, people who are good at doing that tend to. Be Did you so you had a great analogy for coding about um, driving down a road with potholes or something like that in the dark? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I made this analogy. <laughs> I, I was like three months into my first job out of college programming, and I was learning C. And um, there was a guy next to me who was a P. He was working on his PhD in operations research, and we were writing some of these mathematical models. He would come up with a lot of the math, and I would sort of translate it into C. And I told him, I said, "Yeah, his name was Devin." I said, "Devin." I said, you know, programming is kind of like driving down a road with a lot of potholes in it. It's like the first time you hit every single pothole, right? <laughs> and it takes forever, you know, because you pull, like, it's almost like you're pulling your car out of the pothole. And then by the end, it's really painful. But then every time you go down it, you've hit fewer and fewer of the potholes because you know where they are. And after you've done enough times, you can just kind of, you, you can kind of um, predict where they're going to be, anticipate where they're going to be, and just not hit a single one and just kind of slalom by them all, you know, almost with your eyes closed. <laughs> That's what it's like coding for IE6 then. Yeah. I remember he turned and he laughed at me, kind of like, yeah, and he, t- he turned around to the boss. He's like, the boss name is Jerome. He's like, yeah, Jerome, you see his analogy. And Jerome is a really bright guy, you know, he'd been programming for years and years. And he just stopped saying, he's like, yeah, that's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually true. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. You know, talking, uh, speaking of, um, uh, you know, learning to code and stuff, a, a um, friend of ours, she, her son is like about, he's about 15. He's going to be a sophomore year and he's a real bright kid. And uh, he's going to, he goes to like a technical, a high school that has like a tech, it's not a magnet school, but it's a technical school. And yeah. so you can specialize in computer science or material science or different things like that. And uh, he got a scholarship there come from public school. And uh, he's, always, he's learning to program and he was, you know, I guess his freshman year, he did really well and got all A's and perfect scores. And everybody else was really struggling. And um, so now he's like, I want to I teach him. He, he says he wants to teach himself C++. So he's telling me about it. And I was, he's like, well, and I guess they were using something like TC Lite or TK Lite or something like that. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I, I, I did a little Google search on it. I got the sense it was some kind of like simplified C language or something. Yeah. Um, but um, maybe probably a lot of people know what it is. I've just never heard of it. And uh, but he's like, next year they're going to start doing C plus plus, and so he wants to learn it. And he, so what he's done is he downloaded Visual C plus plus Express. Yeah. And he's going to try and learn C plus plus. And I'm just thinking, oh my god. I mean, that's going to be so painful. Yeah. That 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 brings up another point, which is you know, and th- this goes back to this whole ten thousand, thirty thousand now. Like, uh, I mean, I saw um, a posting on Business Software Forum recently, and a guy was asking, you know, my girlfriend wants to start coding, and what we've decided to do is for her to take six months off, and she's going to code for six months. 
And you sort of think, yeah, oh, six months, that's easily enough, you know, to teach someone, you know, the ins and outs of coding. But then you forget about just sort of, you know, over X number of years, just how much there is to learn. There's so many different gotchas and caveats and little twists and turns, like the pothole concept that you're talking about. Yeah. I guess it's it's hard to say. It's hard for me to guess how long it would take someone to learn to program. And I guess it depends on what kind of their, what they're what they're expected to code. You know, I mean, what they're expected to be able to do. Well, what about because, C plus plus? How fast do you think your cousin's going to learn that? Well, it's not my cousin. He's a friend of. He's oh, sorry. A, uh, he's a friend's uh, the son of a friend of ours. Um, okay. I don't. You know, who knows? And like when you say learn to code C plus plus, I mean that's like what does that mean? <laughs> you know, you yeah. can write like a a few classes and hierarchy and cre create like some virtual functions and, you know, learn polymorphism and overloading. I mean, operator overloading. I, I don't know. Um, you know, but then, of course, that, and to, for some people's perspectives, might just be real basic stuff. And you'd be like, okay. But le le learning that's only half the story. Then it's applying it, right? Well, yeah. Well, there's a saying. I was saying, which I thought was really funny. They say, you know, C, C gives you enough rope to hang yourself, but C++ walks you up to the edge of a cliff, puts the rope around your neck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it really, you know, walks you there. So learning C++ on your own I, could be pretty difficult, I imagine. But, you know, I did. I learned C on my own at my first job, and then I yeah. decided to teach myself C++. And I remember reading uh, Stanley Littman's C++, uh, C++ Primer. And yeah. I remember just reading through it, and everything just made complete sense to me. It just seemed like, oh, this is so straightforward. I don't see what the big deal what of it is. What did you do at college? Did you do, um, did you do CS degree? Math, just pure math. So, so your programming basically is taught once you left college. Okay, well, look, I took two classes in in Scheme. It was like the the you know in uh, in college I had to have like sort of a, a minor, like a science minor or something. So I took like a couple or two or three Scheme classes. And yeah. um, but I had known I had learned a program in Pascal when I was in high school and I did some science projects in, in Pascal and I spent a couple summers working for an engineering firm programming in object Pascal. So I had a, I had a background and I knew how to code. I knew what objects were and I knew how to write code to some level. And, um, the scheme classes, I don't know how much that really helped me. I don't, I don't know. But then when I got to my first job, they said, here, here's a book on C, learn how to write C. And I just, did i mean i mean i don't know how long it took me before i was any good i but, think i um, mean i really think that's a great way to learn to learn on the job like that but you do miss out some of the theory and i mean i speak from experience because you know i mean i left school at 15 and basically mm -hmm. didn't have any sort of you know formal college education in that sense and uh, totally learned on the job and as i went along it wasn't until i started getting into big corporates and then just really talking to other people who had gone to college that I then sort of gleaned all of that theory. It's funny because we're a bit like the poor man's Joel and Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's that? Well, I guess I guess they've probably both got CS degrees. No, nah, well, Jeff doesn't even know C for crying out loud. But oh, don't really? group me in with that. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'll throw me into the guys that doesn't know how to code or doesn't know C plus plus. I mean, you know, or whatever. I mean, there's certain things Jeff, I don't know. I don't, code, right? I don't know compiler theory. Right. Yeah. Know? I mean, I'm pretty strong in algorithms and data structures, um, you know, which I had to learn a lot in my first job. So, you know, we were, I mean, we had to do a lot of that. And my, my first job where I was doing C, I, I, we had spent a lot of time doing some really sophisticated data structures. So I, I just bought a bunch of books on algorithm and data structure and just taught myself. Well, I, and I, I can uh, attest to that. I've been around to your house and you have about, I don't know, I would have thought a couple of hundred, you know, coding books on all sorts of different topics. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've always, I've just always been an autodidact, you know. I mean, I prefer to teach myself, and I don't like to go to classes because I just I have a hard time paying attention for pe- people. And they just stand and talk for like an hour, two hours. It just I just end up spacing out, and I just prefer to read the book. My optimal learning environment would probably be to have a project, you know, figure, you know, buy book, whatever books I needed to learn it, and then if I had questions, have somebody I could go and ask if I got stuck. So, what's your viewpoint on using other people's libraries versus versus writing your own code? Well, you know, I mean, I I guess it depends. I mean, if the library is really well supported and it's kind of uh, and it's, I, I guess if it's documented. And with and has examples and is well supported, and also if it's sort of like um, a, a straightforward, like a tight, what they call high, I don't know, a very specific library, like this all-encompassing frameworks, I'm not comfortable with. But like if there's like a JSON, like here's a library that converts JSON and P to PHP and back and forth, I'm like cool, I can use that. I'm not gonna write I mean, that. I, li- I like to use other people's libraries, but only after I've written them a couple of times myself. Yeah. Like, so there was there was this sort of phase, I don't know, like yonks ago, when I decided I was never going to use anyone else's library. So I always wrote my own. But then I just sort of kind of got sick of it. And then once you know the theory and you realize that other people have just, you know, put a lot more time into writing their libraries and they're making them publicly available, taking the whole open source route, all the bug, you know, all the bug fixing being fed back into it. So Yeah, you know, I mean, of course, writing a library to completion to point that it's really production ready takes a lot of time, and, yeah. and you, you realize after a while that it's a waste of time to 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 do that if there's something out there that's really available. I mean, if you're doing it for your own entertainment, own education, then you know, fine. But usually, what you can do is you can spend some time doing it, and then once you've learned what you need to learn and you figured it out, that's good enough, and then you use a library. It's like I think. Um, I think Strustrop said that in um, in his uh, book about C++. He says, you know, everyone should – I think I think this is pretty close to what he said, is that everyone should write their own string class and then throw it away and then use the built-in string class. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Because I mean, once, once, you, once you do, you really understand – you have to learn a lot of C++ techniques in order to write a string class that works properly and you learn and and once you've done that it's like your your, your library still won't be as good as the is the um, standard C, uh, string library or string class it just you know which would be dumb anyway because if you're trying to use other people's code and you're are you trying to share code with other people and they're going to be look at this funky string class that they've never seen before and like what what is this <laughs> you know yeah I mean, it would be like, you know, unless there was a really good reason to try and rewrite or write a better string class, which I would find, uh, you know, hard to believe that you'd need to do that. But, uh, yeah. So we saw, did you see that um, PHP 5.3 got a go-to operator? Yeah, I saw some articles about that on uh, on Hacker News about a week ago. That's kind of crazy. That takes me back to my basic days. I don't know why you'd want to do that. I mean, maybe <laughs> someone could come up with a reason, but it seems like a joke. I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was like no, a joke. No, it really does stuff. it. Like, you can just, like, you know, randomly point to anywhere you want in the code when you hit the go-to. You know, it's like one of those things. Like, PHP is a, is kind of like C++ in that way, and that it's just this sort of language that's not very structured. You can, if you're, if you're, uh, disciplined and you're a, in a, you have a strong background in, in writing code, you can write great software in, C, in PHP, but you can also write complete garbage with these other scripts that just are, I mean, you know, it's like, right, it's like Visual Basic or, or something, go-to statements or whatever, I think. And uh, I think that's why people complain about PHP code. It's like, it, it looks, 
it can it can be so unstructured and so me- messy because often people who write in it aren't you know uh, really great coders. Whereas languages probably like Python and Ruby, I mean I don't have a lot of experience with those languages, but my understanding is that they're just they they enforce a little more structure, especially when you use a framework like Rails. They just enforces like here is the framework, here is the model, here is the con- you know controller. This is how things work, and everything's really well thought out and really structured. Yeah. And they don't give you a lot of rope. Um, so as long as you play by the rules, you're going to write code that other people are going to read and go, hey, this looks good. I understand it, it makes sense. Yeah, but it's going to be slow and it's not going to scale. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> you want to start a flame war? No, I, I, no I'm well, kidding. I, yeah, right. So <laughs> I I think. Um, and that's the thing that's interesting about languages that, are, you know, actually, it's almost kind of reminds me of like the difference between like Windows and Mac. Mac kind of has one way, it's structured, it's clean, you know, there's not as much freedom. Windows gives you all this freedom, but it's kind of like. Oh, you've got ultimate freedom with the Mac now, though, with the terminal. Yeah, but you only have one way to shut it down. With, with uh, Windows, you got like 15. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know what we need? We need, we need like, uh, like, um, a Mac evangelist, a PC evangelist, a Ruby evangelist, and a PHP evangelist, all on the same show. Right, just have a, a just to have a, an all-out war, a yelling match. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of agnostic. I don't really care about languages or platforms. I mean, I'll use whatever, whatever is sort of like you know, I is appropriate for the job. I don't really. Ha- I've used enough languages and platforms at this point that I don't have a strong opinion. But, well, so hold I tend on, to but, use... but, but just one second. Whatever's appropriate for the job. But building websites, there is about 10 languages appropriate appropriate for the job. Yeah, so they all work. I mean, it, Spolsky says this all the time, which is just like, you know what? It really doesn't make the difference. You know, if you want to write it in .NET, ASP.NET, or you want to write it in PHP or Perl or, you know, Ruby or Python or whatever, then do it. You know, I mean, you can do it. A good coder if you know any of those languages, you can make something work and write it in a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, I was really thinking, I was really considering in this, this project that I'm working on right now, um, uh, this web website, um, I can't talk about it specifically yet, but I was considering doing it in Rails just because, like, oh, that'd be fun. I'll just try it in Rails. But the only reason I didn't is that it was such a short period of time. I'd get this, I'd get this thing launched in, like, three weeks. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I know Rails can really increase your productivity because it just generates so much code for you with the metaprogramming and stuff. And I, I've, I've read enough about Rails and I've read through some tutorials and stuff that I get it. But there's always a chance you're just going to get stuck on some things and I can't afford to get stuck on anything in the next three weeks. Yeah, you're I just being a pragmatist. Yeah, I can't spend I can't spend like a couple days going, why I'm trying to do this join, this many to many relationship and this isn't working and I just don't know how to do it and then I'm, you know, I just can't do it. But, you know, I want to... You know, well, that's, I think that's be... SQL, not Rails. Anyway, that's that's not not related to. Rails. Well, yeah, but I mean, Rails Rails does a lot of that model stuff, and it does a lot of the it handles a lot of that SQL to you, but it's SQL for you. But all, all I'm saying is that let's just say that you had some kind of model or some kind of relationship between your tables, like a many to many or something. You know, I'm right, just going right. out there because it's more complicated than a one to one, and yeah. something that just seems kind of complicated. That I know how to do. I know how to write the joins of SQL. I know how to write the code. I know how to write hand code my own stuff and PHP. You know, I could do it in 15 minutes. I mean, if you know how to do it in Ruby, it'd take you probably three seconds. But if you don't know how to do it, it might take you five hours, you know, your first time. Yeah. And um, I think there was, there the was potholes. One, exactly, the potholes. And I just, you know, maybe if I had like two or three months to do the project and it's my first project and I take it to, to, as a learning project for, for uh, Rails, then I'd, I'd do it. But it's just too dangerous. I can't risk not fin- finishing it. So, and I'd read, and, and I, it's funny, right? The night I was deciding to do it, I happened to, 
print-on article and it's by ThoughtWorks. And uh, Martin Fowler works at uh, – he's like one of their chief tech guys over at um, – it thought works. Yeah, he's really hot. Like, sort of um, one of the early thinkers on the whole agile uh, thing. Exactly, and they do it. They do a lot of Ruby. They do a lot of uh, Java, and they do a lot of .NET. Yeah. And they, what he tried to do is, is ascertain exactly how much uh, of a productivity gains they gleaned from using Ruby over, say, Java or .NET or whatever. And yeah. it, it ranged because what he did is essentially they had like I had a lot of projects. Like it was like a hundred projects or something that over the last three or four years that they were able to use as data. And he, I think he went and interviewed the tech leads on all these different projects and had them estimate how much of a productivity boost they gained. And it ranged anywhere from like ten percent to like you know hundred percent or two hundred percent or something. And the average being like you know I can't remember thirty or fifty percent improvement time. And but what he did notice, I think he called it the Ruby Ravine, which was like the first. There's a period of time. When it's an when the team is new to Ruby, that it's going to be much slower to develop in it. Even though it's even though at the end you're going to get a lot for free out of Ruby that you would have to hand code in other languages, other frameworks. Yeah, Ruby's going to do for you. But the first time, you just that just the learning curve. You know, it's just going to get confusing. That's you're, the same thing with Symphony as well. You know, Yahoo uh, uses Symphony, and that's a PHP framework um, that that mm-hmm. uses ORM, and you, you you do the whole you know you do the whole command line thing. Um, you know, I've tried to use that, and I mean, it's definitely a steep learning curve to begin with. Yeah, as you say. I think, um, but I think it's important as a developer that you push yourself and not get too comfortable. It's like you know, I have the languages that I know, and I have the libraries that I know, and it's easy for me to rationalize. Well, I can build this in PHP or C plus plus or you know, Java or whatever the hell I know that I want to use. But a lot of times, it's like you know, if you can think of a good reason to use. Ruby or Python or Erlang or something that's more, more on the cutting edge. It's not a bad idea to do it because otherwise you just never learn anything new. But the world moves forward. Next but if you're you know, a CTO, it's, it's a tough decision to make. I mean, if you're like, okay, let's say you're a CTO, you know PHP inside out, and mm-hmm. you are tasked to build a completely new uh, social network or something. You know, what are you mm-hmm. going to do? You're going to switch to Ruby on Rails, like when you when what you know is another language inside out. You you probably wouldn't in that kind of scenario. You know, even if you wanted to just, you know, to learn Ruby, you're probably going to go, no, I think I'll stick with what I know because, you know, my career depends on it at this point. Yeah, but you have to be careful about that too because, like, you know, you could have said that if all you knew was Visual Basic and you didn't know, say, .NET or C Sharp, for instance, and you're building Windows apps and it's like 2003 and you're building some big project in Visual Basic 6, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, you know it. It's rapid. It works. But, well, I guess I guess but, that's but the case for learning in your spare time. Then, so in your spare time, you learn the new technologies, and then you make, and then you sort of make a, a call at a later date from a business. Yeah, well, I think that's what you want to do. The, the you know, you want to keep pushing the boundaries, and because otherwise, you're just you only looking at these new languages or new technologies from the outside. You don't really know it. You have these biases. You've read these things that people have re- uh, written and you think you take it as gospel, even though you don't even know, you know, if it's true or not. You just like, Oh, I've heard Ruby's 30 times slower than, you know, blah. Okay. Okay. Like, but that might be total kind of, crap, but, but I mean, you read it and it's stuck in your head or it's like, Oh, I've heard that this, but you know, if you actually had spent some time learning, it might turn out that's not true. And, but you're never going to know. And if you're a CTO and you're a person who's in a position to make decisions about technology, then your position decision-making is going to be really um, poor if you don't know these other technologies that are used in the field. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, oh, real quick, speaking of Ruby, which is interesting. I just, one thing I want to bring up about it. I, so 
this uh, this this kid I told you about is a uh, the he's trying to learn C plus plus C plus plus guy yeah 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 so he um I was talking to him about it um and I you know he was talking about downloading Visual C plus plus and I was kind of wincing in the back of my mind going you know it's pretty straightforward but the first time downloading this big IDE and figure out like where the hell do I even start you know like how do I create a project it's yeah. just all painful it's just like this I mean for someone who's use it it's so easy just click on some buttons but it's like imagine if you're writing some of the first time using Microsoft Word you're like what is this mess yeah you know. And so I said, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, I wonder if there's some way to use it, and if some better way to learn this. And so I posted up on uh, on Hacker News, like, are there ways to learn interactive, uh, like, web-based, like, in-browser, um, are there any in-browser interactive tutorials? And I, because I had stumbled across something called Try Ruby, which was, like, kind of an ajax -y sort of interface where you could, you're almost like you're in a command line Ruby, but it would, like, it would use Ajax to send the commands back, I guess. To yeah, Ruby. I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, so I was playing around with it, and I'm like, you know, that would actually be perfect for, for, for him because he could go through, and you, it's not like you have to be paging through a book in your lap and then trying to type stuff in or you have to spend a bunch of time installing software. And Because you, you can easily, if you're a kid, you don't have as much patience and you're resilient sometimes, and you might just get discouraged because you can't get something installed. But correct or, me if I'm wrong, C++ is, isn't interpreted right, it's compiled. No, you're right. It is compiled. So, for instance, what I was thinking is I put, an, I put a, uh, uh, that question up on Hacker News, and someone came up with something called codepad.org. Right. And what it will allow you to do is um, – oh, excuse me one sec. So this, uh, this, the CodePad, what it will do is allow you to type in any number of different languages like Scheme and C++ and Python and PHP and Ruby and I don't know, there's a whole list of them. And it will actually um, run it, I guess, server-side and, and spit out the results. So you can experiment with a lot of different languages. That's very cool. Which would be great for someone learning something. It's like, hey, I'm going to play around with, uh, you know, Perl or scheme or whatever and you know and and, that, and for someone who's learning as some high school kid you know that's really what they want to do at first get some exposure sit down and learn how to write loops i mean because he's asking me like what's a function and we're sitting out there and i'm yeah. like yeah explain what a function is <laughs> try explaining an object <laughs> yeah i mean it's like it's a tricky to to answer that it's like you know my son's four and a half and he'll ask me certain things and he's like you know they're so basic it's hard to even explain what something is <laughs> You know, yeah. that's kind of how I felt when he asked me, what is a function? I was like, kind of stumped me for a minute. I was like trying to think of a good explanation. But the best way to probably explain what a function is, is to actually see what a function, you know, it's a set of instructions that are kind of bound together and da 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 da, da you know. And, but to show some examples, then you immediately get it. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, just, use it, just using anything, I, I always find that a much easier way to learn. I mean, people learn in different ways, but examples for me is just the best by miles. Yeah, you know, the way, where, where I came across this, I had this, I think it probably popped up on Hacker News. It's like where I get most of my news. And this guy was called Hackity Hack or something. This guy's like, why the lucky stiff is like his handle that he goes by or something. And yeah. He's doing this video. He's a pretty, pretty funny guy, and he's like talking about like how terrible the learning situation is for learning how to program. And he's talking about, you know, kids learning to program. And it's like you learn a language and you get handed this big giant book you know and like learn it it's like really if you're learning a programming language why can't you just have like some 80 page book that's just right to the cuts to the core really simple you know and because that's exactly what i was thinking when this kid is asking me you know he's telling me to learn c plus plus i'm like thinking i have a bunch of books but i'm like i can't give him those books because they're like 500 pages he's gonna be immediately intimidated frustrated and give up yeah you need you need a project it's like those it's like those kids uh uh the guys in ukraine who are working on uh biz team 
Right. You know, it's a project for them. You need a project. By the way, they've decided to completely remove away from PHP, and now they're doing it in Django in Python. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. What made them decide to do that? Uh, well, because the one guy decided that he wanted to get he wanted to do graphic design and not programming anymore. Okay. And then the other guy decided he he didn't like PHP and he knew Python, so he moved to that. Well, why not? I mean, you know, you can use any language you want, and uh, Django is kind of like Rails for Python, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Of course, I'm sure a bunch of Rails people listening could be like, "No, it's not." <laughs> <You> okay. <know? laughs> I, I don't know enough about Django to to uh, to say. I, I but I would just you know. What do you think the chances of you know a percentage of our 150 is 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 Ruby on Rails guys? Oh, who knows? I don't know. Well, you think people who listen to tech startup podcasts are going to be much more oriented towards Ruby and uh, Python, and less so towards the uh, ASP or you know the enterprise stuff. So I don't know. Maybe twenty, thirty percent are Ruby people. Twenty percent. Hmm. I'd probably say a quarter. Cool. That's a guess. Maybe we do like a poll one of these days and find out what, what people use. I don't know if we could get much response on it, but. I don't know. So we got to get a Ruby person on here. I, I emailed totally a guy do. today. Uh, what's that? We totally do. I mean, I'd love to get the uh, the GitHub, you know, someone from GitHub on here. Yeah. Uh, I, is, does GitHub have anything to do with Ruby? Why did I just say that? But I, I know why, because Git's just so damn cool. Well, I guess a lot of people, Ruby people use Git. I mean, yeah. you know, you could you could say they're all like relatively newer technologies that all the kids are using. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> but uh, those crazy kids and they're getting rails and yeah. The um, uh, this one guy I, I contact, we'll see if he gets back to me. But uh, you know, he works on the Cassandra distributed database, and I had stumbled across a couple articles he had written, and I thought that would. Oh, be tell really me cool. about that. Tell me about Cassandra distributed database. You know, you know. Look, that's I probably shouldn't because I, I I've read like a page on it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't know. All I know is it's a distributed database, and uh, I think it's based on. Um, it was built initially at Facebook, and they open sourced it, I think, and they use it production system for the production stuff. But it's under ha ha under heavy development. I know that, and I guess one of the I think some of the people involved. One guy wrote or was involved in writing um, Amazon's Dynamo, which I think is another big distributed database. But so Cassandra's like Dynamo 2.0. It's supposed to have the features of Dynamo, but <laughs> even way cooler. And then um, you you also talking about this um, this MySQL zipifier thing that like speeds up MySQL under the hood. It's like okay, so I found this company, and I think now that the product is called TokuDB, T-O-K-U-D-B. Yeah, and. It says that it claims that it uses some kind of like fractal technology or some crazy technology, and it speeds up MySQL um, and maybe Postgres, but I, I know MySQL for sure, like in order of like 10 to 50 times faster. Now, I don't know what they mean. Writes are faster, reads are faster, what they're talking about. But people can go to look up TokuDB and, and Google and check it out. But, you know, we, you and I ran into that, that one guy at goodreads.com. Is that was the name of his startup? And he was talking about how their biggest yeah. bottleneck was a database, which is true with most of these data-centered web apps. And, uh, and I mentioned the TokuDB thing to him, and that's why he, I think that's what it came to the conversation. So he, he emailed me back after I, I forwarded him a link to it. And he emailed me back and was like, it "Looks awesome, but you know, early stage, so maybe they're not." It's to. sort of like from looking at the page that you sent. It 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 sort of feels 
you know the way a Zend optimizer works for PHP. It like sort of right. optimizes it under the hood. It okay. sort of feels like that Toku thing does the same thing for MySQL. Right. I don't know. It'd be. It, it, I mean, it sounds powerful and it sounds like worth checking out, especially if you're running into those kind of problems. But um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I just set up this new site that I'm working on. I just set up on um, Maso or yeah, Maso. I think which is Rack. Oh yeah, wicked. Oh. What's the What's the control panel like? Oh, it's just like every other one. I mean, it's just you know, add a database, set up an email stuff. But is it? I mean, is it an easy and good interface? Because quite often, for example, Hostgator. You know the the interface is just, just a load of crap. Yeah, no, it's it looked to me just as simple as like if you were setting up and managing a shared in a shared hosting environment. You know yeah. where you really don't have to know any Linux at all. All you yeah. have to you can set up a cron job. You can add and delete databases and users and manipulate files and I don't know do just about anything through like a little HTML interface and then. You know, because that's what I was kind of hoping. I was like, you know, I don't have any, I'm the only technical person on this, and I have to deliver the whole thing. And what seems to be able to scale. So, so that's like, Mosso Sites, yeah? Yeah, Mosso Site, which, by the way, I think they have renamed it all of a sudden to Rackspace Cloud. Because <laughs> okay, I have so, Mosso, it, goes, it becomes Rackspace Cloud all of a sudden. So the cool thing about this is basically you can deploy a bog standard a PHP MySQL app that you write. Well, uh, I don't know whether it does other languages, but anyway. Perl and Python, I know for sure. Perl, Python, PHP. De deploy it to this, uh, to the Rackspace cloud, to, to the sites version, and um, yeah. it will just scale. Like So basically, they say that it can scale up to you know 10 million users or something like that. It just does it itself under the hood. I, put, I, I don't believe it myself, but if it does it, it it's It sounds incredible. amazing. I mean, it sounds yeah. amazing. So in that case, like, for me, I don't have to. Apparently, I don't have to worry about TokuDB because it's their problem, right? They make yeah. it scale. I don't have to worry How about it. How can that which, work? How can it scale to 10 million users, for example? I don't know. I would get somebody from their company to come online. Maybe we should interview someone there on their on the show and talk to them I'd rather than yeah, speculate. I think we should interview them. Say, how does this work? Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's um, the the beauty of it is that. You know, really, so you just have to think in terms of simple terms. You have a MySQL database, and you yep. just hit it like you're hitting, like as if you had a single database and a shared host, and all you have to worry about is your little, you know, Python or PHP scripts in your database, and you're just, don't worry about scaling, and they just deal with it. Now, we'll see how it scales. I mean, it is Rackspace. I mean, it's a big company. I can't imagine it would be total crap. I mean, it's got to work. Are you going to move um, Prezo onto that? Probably I should, yeah, because Rizzo keeps cracking under the weight of its current users. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it's only a hundred bucks a Maso or Rackspace Cloud, whatever they're calling it now, it's only a hundred bucks a month. So, well, that makes a hundred bucks once it hits the limits, right? So then once it hits the limits, then it sort of scales itself out. But you pay, it's, it's like a utility. On, it meets, yeah, it meets it. Yeah, you're given like I don't know, three hundred megabytes of disk space, and I can't remember some amount of bandwidth and like 200,000 computational cycles. Now, what a computational cycle is, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what that means. And, uh, but, you know, me testing and working on the site myself for the past week in uploading files and repeatedly, you know, trying stuff out has not even turned out, it still registers as zero in all those. So, I don't so, know. I mean, it's going to be... Uh, that is strange. But so you're, you're basically developing a user-based website mm -hmm. and... You're hoping to do it in how long? Uh, initial version of three weeks. So um, basically a, a real website with a real business model in three weeks. Yep. In fact, but I've only been Fantastic. working on it less. I've only been working on it about a week. And I have to have something for them early next week because 
the founder, um, the guy who pulled me in to build it, um, he's out busy, you know, already talking to a bunch of clients and people and already has a bunch of people waiting to use it and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, can you have me something next week? And I'm just like, holy smoke. Does so, it have an admin interface? Yeah, it's going to have a minimal admin interface. And, and you've got to do that in the three weeks as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. that's going to be basic. I mean, I'm not going to spend minimal time on that because, you know, if there's something I can let go and, and then I can just... So are you talking like scaffolding level admin interface? For the admin, sure. Right, I mean, you know, okay. It's like if you say you want something in three weeks, you can't expect like some spit and polish admin. It's like <laughs> we just get something up, you know, yeah, like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, which is fine, right? We get something up that's basic and works because the 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 site the business model is not a based on the awesomeness of the site i mean the site needs to work it needs to, be able to do some good stuff but you know it doesn't have to be you know the coolest thing in the world it has some ajax stuff it does some pretty cool slick things but you know we can iterate on that you know maybe by the end of the summer we'll have a lot more cool stuff in it but okay. the way i say is don't spend a lot of time doing the first version let's just get it out there and get people using it and determine but you know one thing about this that was, uh, that's worth mentioning is that one of the problems that I think I brought up with you before, we've probably checked on this podcast, is about how when you have a business partner, you have a founder, a co-founder, somebody who's, who's doing the business side while you're doing the technology side, yep. and if they are spending time talking to clients or doing business development or raising money or whatever, but in the end, ultimately they're waiting for you to deliver something that they can use, right? So they are just like bucking and rearing, and they're like, can you give me something? Can you give me something? And which is great because like this guy is like, you know, we need to launch by the middle of July. And now he's like, but I need something next week. So I'm like, oh, damn. But I'm like, all right, I'll get you something, you know, but which is forcing me to go down to the very base essentials. I can't spend time being a design astronaut and thinking all this stuff. It just doesn't matter. Get something up, get something live, you know. Yeah, but once, and, you, you know, once you get it up there, he's going to say, oh, that looks like a load of crap. Well, in, terms, in terms of the design, you know? Well, I'm not doing the design. The designers mocked up some of the screens. I mean, I'm making some changes as I go along because some things just don't work. But, you know, he we're already kind of like the design needs needs to evolve. It clearly needs to evolve. But if you look at the okay. early designs of even sites that are awesome now, they were pretty lame to start with. And that's fine. But what the whole process is doing is it's forcing, it's forcing my hand as a developer to only – focus on the core essentials of the technology and get something up, not to spend months or years, you know, tweaking out the edges of the technology because all this stuff usually doesn't matter. And you're, you're anytime you design and the more time that you work on it before you have users is all speculative time. I mean, once you have users, it's you're, you're so much in such a better position to like know when things that you're working on are, are relevant or not. So I was, I was talking it, to a, it's oh, like sorry. it's like the opposite of Prizo, right? Yeah. Prizo, I spent two years working on it with no feedback, <laughs> right? <laughs> and no business partner, and then I just kind of like we're, we're kind of run out of funding, and then that's just kind of great, okay? And then what does that do? You know, they kind of oh, but this is like okay, you got three weeks to develop it. I'd really like something like a week and a half. But there's always a danger of of like overshooting and going to the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, you know. Uh, Truth lies in balance. Yeah, well, it's true. But, you know, in this case, this, this is what we got. So, um, uh, you know, my wife took the kids to her parents for like five days. She's like, I, we're just going to get out of your hair. You know, you could just, all you can work day and night. So I'm just pulling like, aside from sticking this break to do this podcast, I mean, it's 12 hour, 14 hour days. And I'm just kind of here, hold up at home, just 
cranking out code and I'm just getting the basic stuff because I know that if I get something early next week that's useful that that uh, that we can use that some of these early I don't know I don't know, clients or whatever people can start logging in and, in, and interacting then we're gonna be much of a position so I just got to get it done yeah so it's, it's it's the it's the opposite it's the blitz model it's like the startup in a weekend you know they do the startup in a weekend things you ever here to see those <laughs> yeah. yeah you know because I remember so, you told uh, you I remember you told me when I told you how long I had to do this you just like this is not gonna happen yeah this way. Well, it's not, I mean, like, okay, but, I mean, the real site isn't going to happen in three weeks. I mean, I still don't believe it. Like, yeah, yeah a version of the site, you know, like, uh, let's say a pre-alpha version. But it, there, there's going to be iterations and, and you know, it's going to take at least two weeks to a month to, to get it so that it's actually polished and useful. Yeah, well, that's fine. You know, it's like the, the whole guy Kawasaki, don't worry, be crappy. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, look, when you ask for a site in three weeks, you you can't expect too much. And when you ask for something in a week and a half, I mean, something that people could click on, I'll I'll deliver it. You know, there, there are some things about it that won't be as good as nearly as it could be, but let's get it out there. But at least every change that we make, everything we do after people start using it is going to be based on much better information than if I just so, worked on the thing for three months. Something I'm doing for a client is going in an, a, a different uh, direction to what I expected. Basically, our plan was to mind map and mock, mock up using Balsamic mockups the entire site. So we've done that. Okay. So we've got, you know, like 200 screens worth of mockups. And we've been very, very meticulously wireframing the whole site. So And it's great, yeah? But now what, what the client's decided to do is to now move those mockups into production-ready HTML and CSS. Right. Which to me is, I mean, I mean, in one in one way it sort of makes sense because he wants something linked mm -hmm. together, the final version that he can show investors or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in another way, it's a bit strange because you know you never know what's going to happen down the road. And it, you know, if, if we create all of those, well, if I create all of those screens in production-ready CSS HTML, well, first of all, I'm going to be doing it for the next month plus. You mm -hmm. know. Um, but second of all, it's, you know, I'm sure that 25% of that work is going to be in the can, wasted, you know, mm -hmm. as, as the site actually starts turning into a real site. Right. I mean, tr tradition, I mean, the, what I've been used to doing over the last few years is, is, a, is a more agile process. So, you know, you will do the mock-up for the page you're working on. You'll do the CSS for the page you're working on. You'll make the PHP and the MySQL for the page you're working on. Then you'll move on to the next page. So it, like emergent design, the site will gradually emerge. I think more along the lines of what you're talking about. Whereas this is sort of like waterfall yep. because we're basically yep. doing the whole thing. But it's like waterfall without documentation. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day, the client's right. You know, you can educate them as best you can and try and influence them to do something that you think is a shrewder um, you know, process. But at the end of the day, it's their money. They... They want it done a certain way, you know. Once you've explained them what you think, and they just still decide they want to do it their way, then you just do it their way. Yeah, and, and I you're guess you're a mercenary, right? Yeah, and so they've okay. got their, you know, the client's going to have their reasoning for doing it. I mean, you know, his reasoning in this scenario is to show it to investors. He wants something, right? To show to I investors. mean, because if you don't do it, he's going to find somebody else who will. Yeah, exactly. Right. So oh, I'm doing like, it. <laughs> you know, I mean, fine. You know, you don't do it, I'll find somebody. You know, and uh, I, you know. It's it's like that's the whole problem with uh, consulting, I guess, is that you're ultimately not doing things that you want to work on, and sometimes you're not doing it the way you want to do it. So that's just the price you pay for getting paid up front. <laughs> if they want to pay more money to get the, the system built, 
um, you know, then that there may be business reasons for that. They say, look, I'm willing to pay more for you to do this process that you claim is inefficient. It doesn't matter. There are business reasons why this needs to happen. And even if those business reasons don't make sense to you or you don't understand them, you know, it's just (laughs) what it is, the way it's going to have to happen, I guess. So have you ever used Scriptaculous? No, I mean, you know, I used to hear about Scriptaculous more back when uh, earlier in this in the Ajax days, there was MooTools mm. and Scriptaculous and uh, Prototype, and then later on jQuery started to emerge. Now it seems like jQuery is sort of eclipsing all those. Well, so Scriptaculous, there's been a complete rewrite of Scriptaculous, and it's called Scripty2. It's at scripty2.com, and I just thought that that might be worth mentioning. Now, is it script? Now, isn't it more like special effects? Like jQuery itself is just sort of like a a way of interacting with the DOM, and it has lots of slick ways of chaining together function calls and it, it makes it sort of like a, a browser agnostic way of interacting with well yeah but jquery DOM, does have the whole animate thing you know but that's built is that built on top of it or is that part of the core no, that's that's part of that's part of the part of the core jquery yeah now because all the javascript i've done is all i built all my own library so i really haven't used any of the libraries mainly because i started when i started building this stuff it was before these libraries existed you yeah. know, the only thing there was at the time was prototype, and I just built my own because I just, you know, I looked through prototype and some of it I just didn't understand at the time. So I just said, ah, whatever, and I built my own. So but, is your is your library, you know, similar to jQuery in the sense that it's to it's to deal with the DOM that kind of thing? It does. There's a lot of it does that. I, I, I mine is closer when I look at libraries. It's much closer to Yahoo's library. Oh, you like Yahoo's library. So why didn't you, uh, you know, release it as an open source library or something like that? I just didn't have the time. You know, it's like one more thing you got to like deal with and track and then other people want improvement. I don't know. I just didn't. I've never released anything open source. It's not because I have anything against it. It's just I've just been so busy. Um, I just never bothered because I think if you're going to release something open source, you know, the only reason to do open source is if other people are really going to use it and improve it. And the only way that's going to happen is if you get out there and promote it, probably, and really push it. And if you don't have the time to do that, then it's just going to be this sort of, like, abandoned... Yeah, you know, like and five, you have to be... It's a, it's a timing thing as well. Like, you have to be somewhere, you know, correctly along the timing chain. Like, yeah. EasySQL, for example, if I was to release that today, it, would, it wouldn't really go anywhere, even if I did promote it. Because it, yeah. there's just too many you know, database wrappers or abstraction classes already. Right. And when I was working on mine, you know, I wasn't thinking of it. It just sort of came together as a series of utility functions and objects that I developed over time, you know. But by the time I even thought of doing that, I mean, there already was at least prototype MooTools and Scriptaculous. And it was right around the time that jQuery, I think, was starting to emerge. And uh, I don't know, it's already like the fifth one to the party. And then Google comes out with their thing. And then Yahoo, it's like, ah, do we need another one? I mean, whatever. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's like if you release yours and you're one of the first, then what happens if it becomes popular? If it becomes popular, then everyone, then you become like a rock star and you get to go to conferences and maybe write a book and people pay you to, to hear you talk and you have so that's the upside that's the upside of, of releasing the day, something like i that. don't know but who really cares i, I mean it, it certainly helps with work i mean i you know i know I that guess it does experience. i mean i guess with john resig or who was the guy's name who wrote the first uh, pro, who wrote prototype he works at 37 signals i think oh yeah he's in a very high profile guy doesn't seem like he's probably a low-key guy but um you know i guess one of those guys would have zero problem hooking in with any startup or probably getting funding if they wanted. So I guess that would be the that's the up, upside of of 
putting time into uh, a, a open source project that you created and becomes a big deal. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but there's only very few of them that have become a big deal, I guess. I mean, how many, how many of these open source projects are really high profile to the point, enough to the point that people know who you, who you are? Well, 30 of them, 30, maybe 50. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Tops. And there's a lot of other ones that you could point to and people say, oh, I've heard of that. You developed that? Oh, wow. And they talk to you at that point. Like it's, it serves as a, a real sort of reference point for your, for your uh, credibility and stuff. But it's not like you're a rock star. You know, there's a difference. But it's, it shows, I mean, developing uh, something open source to be consumed by the community shows a certain level of professionalism because you've got to up, upgrade your professionalism to do that. You've got to get the documentation right. You've got to make the code tight. Otherwise, everyone laughs at you. You know, you've you've got to just basically get your you know strengthen your game. Yeah, I think that's um, I think probably it's probably a great thing to do. I mean, I it's one of those things that I always felt that I should have done, and I kept thinking like, okay, I'll start doing it like you know next month. <laughs> great, <laughs> I guess I, you know I have like fifty projects in like ten different programming languages. I'm like, oh, I should open source that. I should open source that. Then like, oh, okay, I just have time. I'll do it like next month, and then uh, I've never done it. Well, that's you know? what you've decided to do with Prezo anyway, isn't it, to open source it. So that means, you know, that – well, you haven't ultimately decided. No, but... I, I, that was just an idea that Jason Calacana suggested when I called oh. into This Week at Startups when I yeah. asked the question, like, what should I do with it? Oh, so, okay, so you haven't He said, decided. see if you can start a funding or fundraising drive, maybe open source it, but I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that takes off an open source, like a, a web app. I don't know. Well, there are open source ones. But then I have to get in it. It depends what I want to do with it. I mean, I wouldn't open source something unless you want to spend time supporting it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I want to spend time to it. I don't know if I can afford to spend time yeah. supporting it. I just don't have the time. I don't have five extra hours a week. You've to got three kids, a wife, and you need to earn a living. And a half dozen projects. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's like... You know, I can't. I can't spend you know half a dozen hours a week. People are emailing me and say, "Oh, can you do this? Or can uh, how does this work? Or can you change this?" I don't have time. Where am I? When's the time going to come? I already sleep like six hours a night. I'm already exhausted. <laughs> you oh, know, poor Jason. I just don't have the violins time. in the background. Poor. I know. Well, it's not I'm complaining. I'm just saying <laughs> I, I just don't have the time to to do certain things. I wish if I had the time, I'd do a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, maybe maybe if uh, one of my uh, you know startup ventures becomes a big success, I'll just spend a lot of time doing cool open source things. But right now, I gotta you know pay the bills, and I just don't have the time to do it. So I have to be very pragmatic in terms of how I, <laughs> how I get my time. That's why I'm not spending this time with Twitter. That's why I don't have a thousand followers. I mean, talking about time, we you know we're probably coming to the end of this show. Okay. Yes, yeah, about a little over an hour, I guess. Um. But. Uh... What oh, one last thing I think I bring up that was kind of interesting. I guess yeah. I'll just have a funny thing. There's some of Google's guidelines to speed up the web, and they're apparently you, uh, you know, most <laughs> all these browsers you don't have to put like a body tags or head tags or HTML tags. You don't have to put close TD or close TR for your tables. Yeah, you don't have to do all of these things. So they don't they don't even do any of that stuff in their pages to speed, to make them and it makes them faster. I even know. if even if you're like one of these sort of HTML, it's, you know, pain, it's so painful to look at. Yeah, but if you look at, if you view source on Google homepage, there's no closing body or HTML. It's just outrageous. That is hilarious. I was like, they're just dumping out this nasty code. But you know, I look. I'm not a. I'm not a, uh, a, a standards purist. I'm more of a pragmatist. I'm like, whatever. I get something done later on. If things work, we'll go back and like make it semantically perfect and 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 everything but i'm just sort of like whatever gets things done and like a lot of times like recently 
and like, even on this current project, when I'm laying stuff out, a lot of times, the first time I'll do it, I was like, oh, I'll just do it with a bunch of divs, you know, and you start doing this absolute positioning and relative positioning and, you know, and all this stuff, and you're trying to get everything to line up and position right. And a lot of times it just won't work. And I'm just like, all right, I've been dorking around with these divs for the last 45 minutes or an hour. Screw it. It's a table. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. You know, someone could come up and, and send me a nasty email about how my stuff is, you know, not semantically, you know, correct. But I have to get this thing to scale, to, 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 to resize correctly. And, you know, I can do it at a table in all of 30 seconds. And I've been dorking around with the CSS for, and I'm good at CSS. I've done it. But it's still, I find myself just fighting with it. Yeah. And uh, I feel, I, you know, it's part of, you always feel a little guilt when you do tables for layout. <laughs> you're like, I know this is, I know people are going to, if anyone looked at this code, they were like, why do I have all these tables inside of tables inside of tables? But if you look at a lot of Google stuff, they do the same thing. It's all tables. It's tur so turtles is, all the way down. What, so is, is uh, Google main results page tables? Oh, I don't know. But I remember looking at the source of their, like, some of their web apps. Like, I think of, I remember looking at, um, I think their spreadsheet one at one point, and it was like, Tables and tables inside of tables. Because the thing about tables is they don't they don't render until the page is loaded. I, well, certainly the main browsers. I think that Opera might possibly do it as in, as it builds it. But I think well, like, other. Yeah. I guess if you're, um, I guess it depends. Some of these web apps, like the the page loads once, right? Yeah, yeah. So the spreadsheet's loading once. It's not like you're refreshing pages constantly. So you just oh, want to. Load a, but what you want you is you want this. That, yeah. thing. A, yeah, it's, 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 then it's just Ajax calls, but what you want is you want to have really good control of, of how things are shown. You're trying really tricky stuff and things resize dynamically and it needs to work across browser. And you It's know, funny, you, uh, <clears throat> talking about like that, that sort of thing about you know, when the page displays, there's been certain times when I've chosen to, because you know the way you can gzip every page that goes out and the browser will unzip it. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you're transferring less data and that yeah. will make it seem like the page is coming in a lot faster. And if the page is short, that's true. But if you have a really long page and you gzip it, it just seems like to be really laggy and slow. So under that scenario, I will not actually gzip it on a, under a very big page with an HTML table. Or, well, not even an HTML table, but just a lot of text or whatever. I'll sort mm. of specifically send that down the line uncompressed so that it goes into the browser and gets yeah. uh, displayed as it gets fed in. You know, I've actually never experimented with that. I mean, gzip, a lot of times, isn't it kind of like turn on automatically like Apache and stuff? Well, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, with, with um, you know, with, with pH, I mean, you can, you can turn it on, but it's, it's not automatic, no. Is it like, I always, I always thought some of that gzip, gzip stuff was sort of like an automatic setting, like a, an Apache configuration or PHP. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a compatch, it's an Apache configuration or it's something you can do at PHP level. But, yeah. um, you know, every browser will accept it, but it's just the page doesn't even right. begin to render until it's until the whole page is uh, uncompressed. So if you send down a 500k page, right, yeah. in gzip format, then it's got to uncompress the whole thing and then display. So you know, users are just sort of sitting there staring at a screen for ages. Is there a rule of thumb about what size page should be gzip? <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know rule of thumb. It's just uh, you know, I just keep refreshing the page and whatever feels good. <laughs> whatever works you just yeah, yeah basically yeah that's probably right i mean because there's probably a lot of factors that go in and the kind of data like how com how easy it is to do the compression i mean i don't know i know nothing about how compression algorithms work so okay but i guess and, you know it's like everything in writing code you just got to experiment and see because you can read a bunch of articles and you know 
people say this is a benchmark and this is the best way and that way. And then you try it and you're like, it doesn't quite pan out. People say, or at least in the context of your, you know, what you're working on or whatever. So yeah, it's always best to test anyway. Might as well just test it. <laughs> just see. Actually, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I love paying attention to detail. The the little polishes, you know, like we talk about flash as a component. When you try and work with text, it just doesn't quite feel right. So, you know, I'd rather I'd rather find another component that that is sort of zippy and zingy. And, right. you know, when you have um, when you pay attention to lots of little details like that, your app will add up to be something, you know, a bit more special. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think you start, you release something early, you get it out there, yeah. you see if people care and then you start iterating, you start adding polish and polish and attention to detail. And then six months, a year, 18 months down the line, it just becomes something really Awesome. And I've got to admit, Facebook only, is like that. You know, the Facebook mail experience is pretty polished. Yeah. I've never, I, I, I don't use Facebook. My wife is a huge, she's gotten really <laughs> big on Facebook the last few months. She has tons of all her friends and it's, works great for her. Yeah. Because uh, she's able to keep in contact with, you know, I mean, she doesn't have like 10,000 friends or followers or she has like her 30 or 40 close friends and family and everybody, but it works perfect for her because she's, you know, home with the kids all day and she can just kind of stand up with that laptop, which is on her counter and just like check in and what people are doing and what's going on. So it's great. I don't use it at all. Yeah. So, but it looks like a really useful tool, but you know, whatever, we don't get to our Facebook segment like we do our Twitter. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about it? Anyway, I think but we've come to the end of the show. Yep. If you know anyone who you think would like this show, we'd totally appreciate it if you could send them a link to textinglive.com. Uh, where you can listen to the show on demand or you can subscribe via iTunes. So I guess that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> like Mr. F***ing Cool. I mean, he gets four and a half. He's like... <laughs>